Scotch face. I pledge allegiance. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and back again in the co-host chair is my friend Nick Bambach. How you doing? Good. How are you, Josh? I'm doing good. Happy uh, Sunday. And I hope you're staying healthy, staying well, washing your hands. Not touching your face. Not touching your face, keeping keeping your distance, all that, so- all that stuff. Social distancing. Yeah. Six feet away. Right. Six feet away, not six feet under. Oh, exactly. <laughs> That's it's it's scary out there. So I'm I'm glad you're keeping safe. I know you work with the public, so <laughs> that can be I tough. I know it's and it, it, because we're going to talk about new wave. It's a mad world. Yeah. Oh, well done, well done for Tears for Fears fans. So what what have you been up to lately, Nick? Anything exciting? Uh, it's been a very um, productive time the last few months since our last podcast recording. Yes. Um, I recorded that uh, article for my website on uh, women who should be in the nominating committee for the rock roll hall of fame. Uh, yeah. It got a really good reception. I mean, I got emails from like professional critics and wow, good writers, for you. That's like, really exciting. Board and like New Yorker. It was kind of weird. And <laughs> I, like, I, I woke up the next day and I didn't really think anything of it. Um, but it was just so, so nice. And I was very surprised. I mean, I, it was not the intention by any means, but it was really awesome. And even like Ann Powers and wow. Amy Linton. Congratulations. They, they retweeted it. I was like, what? <laughs> it's definitely, it, it helps you that it's such a hot button topic right now because there's been a lot of backlash in the Rock Hall. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And the Hall Watchers and uh, the community of that, those people have really supported more gender and quality. And mm. I think that's really important. And it's kind of pitiful that there's only what seven or eight women out of the 30. It's just because the article yeah. wanted to kind of prove that more or less there's a lot of women to be considered. They just are lazy and they're not considering these women. I mean, yeah. it's just insane, but it was, it's been very good. Just been trying to be more productive with uh, the, the blog and trying to write more just hard. Sometimes you get like writer's block yeah yeah and, and you're trying to like and there's so much going on with everything in the world right now and uh obligations yeah, professionally absolutely. personally that you know hopefully something will get published soon i'm sure it will i'm holding out hope for you so this is kind of like the rock hall fatigues months where you're just like you're between the ser like the announcement of the inductees to the actual ceremony which is like who knows at this point with yeah. um it being postponed so i call it rock hall fatigues yeah well full disclosure if you don't mind me putting this out this might be actually be a good entry point to our main conversation because nick and i actually had plans to go to the induction ceremony this year and um obviously for obvious reasons they were thwarted um, which is actually, you know, if it, thinking about it, I'm, I'm kind of two for two now in, in rock hall ceremonies not working out. <laughs> 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 but um, 
but this but one of the inductees this year that we would be well hopefully still seeing is our band of the day Depeche Mode. I know that you're you're a super fan. Now is Depeche Mode like your number one favorite band? Uh no. I, I mean well no, I can't say no. I I don't have a favorite band per se. I have like a few favorite bands. Yeah. I think my favorite band is probably the Clash. I mean, I always feel like the Clash always had a perfect balance of mainstream appeal and popularity, but also they were politically, socially active. And I always think of the moniker that it's the only band that matters. And I think that <laughs> is right in many ways, because, I mean, those lyrics of Joe Strummer, it's just incredible. And he was taken way too soon. And London Calling is my favorite album probably ever. It's just a perfect album, I think, from start to finish. Your jaw's going to fall to the floor when I tell you this. I just listened to London Calling for the first time start to finish last year. You texted me after that. Because Did I? I? Oh, okay. Because ironically, and I, I tweeted this last year, and so London Calling was released on December 14th, 1979. I was born 10 years later. That so was, That's definitely fate right there. It's like, you know, I, I love that album start to finish. And then I also, I love Depeche Mode, um, one of my all-time favorites. I mean, definitely mm. top 10, if not top five. Wow. One of the strongest dis- discographies of any modern band I could think of. Yeah. When did you first get into Depeche Mode? Like, how did you discover them? Uh, I would say probably high school or college, like my undergrad years. I mean, I kind of always knew that they existed. It's like The Cure almost. That That's the band I always... I hate to always compare them because I feel like it kind of gets old after a while. But The Cure and Depeche Mode, like, you know they existed. You could probably name a few of their songs, but nothing beyond the hits. So, like, with Depeche Mode, probably Personal Jesus, uh, Enjoy the Silence, Just Can't Get Enough. And then I was kind of like, who, what else? Right. (laughs) It's just just like The Cure where you're like, okay, love song, just like Heaven, Friday I'm in Love. Pictures of You. Yeah, that might be the other one that everybody knows but yeah oh and boys don't cry because of yeah. the, the movie right but um it's just really interesting how once you kind of listen to music and i kind of started that when i was a grad student i don't know like seven or eight years ago go in and listen into depeche mode from start to finish and i was astonished at how great the songs were and then i went like backwards almost because the height of their popularity was 1990 ish mm. that was when they became superstars in america Yes. But if you think about it, they started in 1981, their first album, Speak and Spell. Mm-hmm. And they did seven albums in like a nine year period. That's very prolific for a mainstream band. Right, right. And, and on top of that, going through some, you know, minor lineup changes and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, you had Vince Clark was the primary songwriter. And he did, of course, their, one of their biggest hits early in their career. Just right. Can't Get Enough. And Dreaming of Me. And, you know, stuff like that. He left after the first album. To join and, another one of my very favorite underrated pop duos, Yaz. Or is it Yazoo? Or is it Yaz? Yaz? If you're in England, it's Yazoo. If you're in America, it's Yaz. And then he did Eurasure. Now, for any other band, this would be the end of their careers. Just Can't Get Enough, they'd be one-hit wonders, like mm-hmm. so many new wave acts of that time. But Martin Gore stepped up to the plate. And he was in the band, like the keyboardist, or whatever role he was. Mm-hmm. And he more or less became the primary songwriter. Now, the Vince Clark era Depeche Mode songs are very poppy, very lighthearted, 
You could dance to them. That's just the nature of those songs. Right. When Martin Gore became the songwriter, they kind of took a few albums for them to find their rhythm. Like they did A Broken Flame and Time Construction again. And they were kind of like finding their voice. And really the first great Depeche Mode song was Everything Counts, which is, of course, one of the performances featured in 101. Yes, yes. And that's like, I think their best song in many ways, because it, it, it's the perfect harmony of Dave Kahan's lead vocals, that baritone voice, and then you have Martin Gore singing the chorus. And it's just, it's a perfect, like, um, harmony of those two voices. Their fourth album, which is Some Great Reward, which has some really fantastic songs, like Master and Servant, Blasphemous Rumors, mm-hmm. Somebody, and then it has probably their first really big pop hit, which is People Are People. It was a top 20 hit here in the U.S., and it was kind of like, I'm not a big fan of that song personally, because I think it's very... I don't know if preachy is the wrong word, but it's very, they hate that song too. So I'm not like, (laughs) you know, like they haven't performed it ironically since the concert that we watched today. They haven't, they haven't performed it at least in my lifetime. And I don't think they ever will uh, unless they're inducted into the rock hall, which is happening. Yeah. I I doubt doubt they're going to play that. Yeah. Because I mean, there's so many great songs in there, but like they, they, that's a song that they really don't like. And it's really interesting. So they were still kind of trying to find their, uh, voice and, th- and this was a very darker album especially the song yeah. blasphemous rumors it's like about a a girl who attempts suicide and then finds god <laughs> and only to get killed by a car in a hospital it's so sad uh but my favorite album is their fifth album which is black celebration which is mm. so great have you listened to that I've listened to some of it. I haven't heard it start to finish, but I know a handful of songs. It's it is really good. It's excellent. it's kind of a deep cut album choice. Absolutely, and I think it's one that the devotees, you know, the name that the Depeche Mode fans name themselves after, devotees. That's one of the <laughs> ones that they always say is their favorite, and I like it because this is like their full embrace of the darkness. But it's really, really a brilliant album. And one that like doesn't get enough love, like you have Stripped, you have A Question of Time, Black Celebration, Fly in the Windscreen. Brilliant, brilliant album. Yeah, it seems like it's a, really a fan favorite. It is, but it's only like the hardcore fans like. And I think, mm. and I think the one that the general public like is the next two albums, which is 1987's Music for the Masses, and then, of course, Violator, which is yeah, the that was one... a huge breakthrough. Violator was right after 101, so 101 is really interesting because you see music for the masses. It's actually sandwiched between those two albums, music for the masses and Violator. And right, right. I love music for the masses too. I think that's a, another brilliant album, and a lot of the songs in the movie, of course, are uh, featured because. You know that that's the tour that they're they're on is the music for the masses tour. And what's really funny is that the title of that album is really ironic because, you know, they joked around because they really haven't achieved mainstream success here in the U.S. They were very big in Europe and elsewhere, but yeah. America was not in the cards for them yet. When they thought of the title for music for the masses, they did it like tug in cheek. And it's really funny because if you look at the album cover, when you get a second, you see a few megaphones. They're trying to like desperately 
get notoriety here and they're just not it's it's almost like noise like it's just not happening for them yeah <laughs> and then of course they did 101 which is the famous pasadena bowl performance yes in, yes in june 1988 you know this is fascinating for me um because we kind of chatted before we started a lot of fans and, and yourself obviously included their fandom is in their 80s period predominantly and for me interestingly i remember very clearly, actually one of my earliest memories being like six years old and Violator had just been released and my older brother, he was he's quite a bit older than me. He was a teenager at the time. He came home one day from from shopping or whatever and he had this album with the rose coming and, and he's like, yeah, there's this band. They're awesome. They're called Depeche Mode. I'm like, what what does that mean? And like, what is this weird cover? And then he played it and it, it was a little too intense for me at that age. But I remember very, very clearly him introducing the family to Depeche Mode and then my dad started listening to them. So from that point on, was kind of when I started becoming familiar with them, like through Songs of Faith and Devotion and Ultra. It's really fascinating because Violator is when Depeche Mode entered the top 10, both on the singles charts with Enjoy the Silence and the albums charts. And then Songs of Faith and Devotion in 1993 went to number one. Which is wild to think about because it's not one of their most regarded albums now. It's a mixed production because I think on the one hand, I admired Depeche Mode, and this is something I'm just going to say stepping out of the fandom for a second. Mm -hmm. I always admired Depeche Mode's innovative spirit. They always wanted to constantly evolve and they always tried to like take sounds like metal or EDM, industrial, pop, R&B, and trying to just make sense of it and put their own spin on it. Songs mm-hmm. of Faith and Devotion's more rock based. Dave Gahan was really into the Pixies and Jane's Addiction and a lot of American alternative and grunge bands and then wanted to use that on Songs of Faith and Devotion, which sounds really weird because Violator was such a monster hit of an album. You would think they would want to like reproduce what they did for Violator and even music for the masses to keep having hits. And that kind of like right. tore the band apart in many ways. You know, it was almost like a step, I don't want to say a step backwards, but it was 180 from what they had just accomplished with Violator. And, and they do have some good songs on there, like Walking in My Shoes or I Feel You. There yeah. are some good songs on Songs of Faith and Devotion. I just think that it's one of those albums where, you're right, they took a step back. And it's like they just achieved superstardom. They're selling out arenas. And they're an arena rock band. A profitable one, as we right. see in this movie. Which is like unheard of for like a new wave alternative electronic band Depeche Mode never really had a platinum album before this Pasadena full performance yeah and it's just wild to think that they had the nerve almost to say (laughs) you know what we're gonna sell out this 60 plus thousand seat arena and and film a movie about it yeah like I mean they didn't even sell probably 10 times the amount of albums that are like the, the amount of seats in the Pasadena Bowl times that by like 10 or 12 and that's probably how many albums they probably sold with music for the masses so it's very much a cultish band at this mm-hmm. point them along with like say maybe like rem because they hit the airwaves around the same time but they were both underground but had a huge following at the same time and you too as well i always say yeah you too, and we'll talk about this later is you two and Depeche Mode have very similar career trajectories. They both mm-hmm. started around the same time. They both kind of were bubbling in the U.S. around the same time. At this time, we saw like the Joshua Tree and Rattle and Rum, and like you two were like R- Rattle and Hum, right? 
Did I say rattle and hum? You said rattle and rum. <laughs> oh, shake. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, it's okay. We all need to drink right now. It's fine. <laughs> at, at this point, and it's really weird because if you watch, like, have you ever seen the movie, the U2 movie? Yes, I have. I think it's really weird because they were made around the same year. Yeah. Like, same time period. And, like, one is so pretentious and so what's the word I want to use? Almost boisterous. And the other is like yeah. this fun part fan, part concert movie. But what's really interesting, Josh, I don't know if you know this, is that Depeche Mode 101 was supposed to really be about how does Depeche Mode fit into the landscape of 1980s popular music? Then they kind of realized it's an impossible question to ask, especially when it's of that time. We don't know in like 20 years how people are going to view the band or right, their right. influence. Where like U2, that's what they did. And it comes across very um, self-serving. The U2 movie was more or less made for an art house kind of thing. Like it's in black and white. U2 seemed to be more concerned with making sure that the audiences buy into them. Whereas Depeche Mode is a little bit more, this is just who we are. We'll get in fights with cab drivers we don't care you know like just... oh i know and, 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 and the crazy thing about Depeche Mode is that they're not putting on an act i don't think they're they, that's this, yes that's how i want they, to say it these are just four guys and they just kept working hard trying to build a fan base and they did it's just really interesting if to look at that youtube movie and compare that to the movie we're going to talk about now it's just fascinating. It is. Before we get into that, let's do our top three Depeche Mode songs. <laughs> you I'll knew it was first. coming. Okay, go ahead. You know, it's impossible for a devotee to have three songs. You know that. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's very hard. Okay, so the three that I jotted down was Everything Counts. Confidence, take us in by a sunset and a Never let me down again. Yes, a classic. And then I know it's going to sound really typical, but I also like Personal Jesus. I just think that that is Depeche Mode at their best. You're Well, I actually think Never Let Me Down is their best overall song. It's very cinematic, very... We'll, we'll talk about the scene in the movie that with the performance, but Personal Jesus is just such an epic song. And I think it speaks of their influence that so many rockers covered that song, like Johnny Cash yes, and Marilyn yes. Manson and even Sammy Hagar. It's wild. I might drop a bombshell on you. Oh, Lord, what? I don't love that song. 
<laughs> I just like it because I think it's like it, it's like eerie and mysterious. Yeah. I mean, I, I could give you like three or four more, but like, you know, that's not the rules for this game. Right. I don't know. It just to me, it's never grabbed me. I don't know if it's something about the beat or maybe there's not. I, you know what it is? I think there's just not that much of a melody there. It's I find it repetitive. I also really like my other. And I'm just going to like break the rules for a minute. My other <laughs> two are probably Black Celebration. I love that song. Yeah, that is great. And I also love, for some reason, I also really love Shake the Disease. It's a hard song to sing. It is. To, and it's because- very catchy. It is like that chorus. Oh my God. It's so good. What are your th- top three, Josh? Okay. Uh, you might roll your eyes at how basic they are, but oh, geez. <laughs> sort of my number three is probably going to make a lot of diehard fans groan, but I have to go for just can't get enough. I just love how bouncy and fun that song is. catchy song it's a good new romantic yeah it's just i find it very infectious it gets under my skin it it puts me in a good mood and it's like played at sports events come on i mean i'm not a huge fan of it personally like it would never be in my top 10 or 20 but it's a good poppy song it is and i think it's just because i am such a vince clark fan i love pretty much everything he's ever done he's like the brian eno i think of yeah, that yeah era. he had like his hands in so many cookie jars because brian eno was in roxy music then right. solo and then producing he had a once in a lifetime pop sensibility and my love of a good pop song is very well documented so <laughs> oh we, we know that yes my number two is a very deep cut from an album that is heavily dismissed i think i only really know it because it was a staple in my household and it's the opening track off of ultra and it's barrel of a gun The thing that I love about that song is it's very dark, it's very eerie, but I like how it has a little bit more of a contemporary sound than a lot of the a lot of its predecessors. I think it has a more expansive sound. I think it has more girth to it, I maybe is the word. It's not as um 
marinated in the 80s sensibility as, as a lot of their other hits, which is nothing wrong with that at all. But it just, to me, no, I find right. it a little bit more compelling for that reason. I, th- I think that's a fair statement. A lot of uh, the new wave bands, especially Depeche Mode, is some of their songs aged really well, that some of it did not. So that's sort of a, a shocking second choice. But I just, for some reason, I love that song. Blown and it away. could just be, yeah, and it could just be because I, you know, I've heard it so much in my life that it's gotten a chance to really get under my skin. But yeah, I, I really, I really dig that one. Um, and my number one is maybe a little bit predictable, but to me, it's a song that's always worked for me a little bit better than Personal Jesus does from the same album. And it's Enjoy the Silence. All I ever wanted, all I ever needed is That is a great song, and I think what's really great about it is when you listen to it, when I listen to it now at least, I forget like how very few lyrics there are in that song, and it's yeah. there's just as much of the instrumental than the actual vocals that Dave Gahan sings. It's a great song, and I love that music video. Like, yeah. it's, so, it's so memorable, like him in the king's costume and he's roaming around like some kind of like <laughs> hillside, and you see like random shots of the band in black and white. Yes, it's it's classic. It's all I ever wanted and all I ever needed. I think you and I, we represent the yin and the yang of Depeche Mode fandom. Oh, we do. So w- we can get into the movie uh, that we're talking about today, which is Depeche Mode 101, a, another in a series of rock docs that I've kind of been covering a lot of lately, which is exciting because I haven't done too many documentaries. Very much a verite style document of their Music of the Masses tour. It also documents a group of teenagers, late teens, early 20s, who have won a contest to go cross country to see their Rose Bowl finale. So it's pretty cool. And also interspersed in that is a lot of performance clips and a lot of backstage insight and antics. It's directed by the legendary D.A. Pennebaker. We're talking a little bit beforehand about our thoughts on the movie. I do just want to say first before we start that the Rose Bowl concert in Pasadena, it actually took place on my third birthday. Oh, happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks, June oh, 18th. Happy, happy birthday, like 30 years later. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, 32 years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that oh, was exciting. Funny. Yeah. So what are some of your thoughts on the movie itself? Like as a fan, do you like the movie? Do you not like the movie? Just some general thoughts. Okay, so here's the thing. So I saw this movie probably about, I want to say five or six years ago. I loved it. Like, it was just yeah. such a fun movie. And I would watch it every now and then. Because it's like a document of a band that's just about to break through in America. And just about to become superstars. Global superstars. Because America yeah. escaped their popularity up until this point, really. Now... When I watched it again, so I watched it twice. I watched it today before we record this episode, but I watched it over two nights on Thursday night and Friday night Mm -hmm. because I was just too tired to watch it. And I like to take a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I had a mixed feelings when I rewatched it Thursday and Friday night because I felt that I hated the teenagers. I thought they were so annoying for most of the movie. (laughs) And you could have (laughs) cut... At least 20 minutes of this movie. I thought it was over long. Like, I didn't realize it was a full two-hour movie. I have to agree with you there. I did... I feel like it went on for a little bit too long. You could have probably cut 
a half hour. Yeah, I was going to say more like 20 minutes, but yeah, perhaps a half hour. 20 to 30 minutes is a fair range. Like, I didn't care about these fans in terms of like what their opinion on art is, like what is art or what is fashion or stuff like that. It just was like, you're just adding fuel to the fire to the purists of rock and roll who basically dismissed the Pesh Mode as like not relevant, not cool. Yeah. And I felt like, I thought they were kind of mean to some of the people that they interacted with, not on the tour bus. I thought they were very mean when they were at the restaurant and they were like, what is this shit you're eating? Or you guys are stupid. And I think they were in New Mexico with that. They're very point. much, very, very much teenagers. And and your talent of the movie will depend on your tolerance for those shenanigans. Yeah. And then the blonde haired guy, he annoyed me to death. Like during the screen. And I Jay, not, right? Is that who that is? I think I think so. Yeah. I know Mohawk guy. Oliver. Guy. Yeah, you know their names. Oh, I know their I names. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. He was always drunk or stoned or... They all were. Both. This movie kind of gets some credit for inventing the real world and inventing reality TV. And it's very much an MTV kind of movie. Like 100%. even the Even the graphics, like at the beginning, <laughs> it looks like so 1989. Yes. <laughs> now, let's go back for a second with the being in a Depeche Mode movie contest. So some of the background I think is really fascinating with this movie. Initially, like with the U2 movie we were talking about before, how does Depeche Mode fit into this 1980s popular music landscape? Then apparently they worked with a very commercial, quote unquote, an experienced director we don't know who it is it didn't work out because i guess there are creative differences and then they approached d.a pity baker because d.a pity baker is of course one of the most famous hugely hugely influential and he was especially almost an expert on depicting rock and roll talents Mm -hmm. through the documentary uh tradition so you'd you'd have like don't look back with the bob dylan monterey pop which is like a who's who of the psychedelic era one one of my very favorites of all time is monterey pop absolutely it's such a great movie and so you have like hedrix redden joplin the who simon and garfunkel jefferson airplane all these like people like they're prime and then Mm -hmm. he did movies with david bowie alex cooper jerry lee lewis lil richard John Lennon. This guy is almost like an immortal when it comes to documentarians. It seems really weird that D.A. Pettybaker would do this movie because it's so unlike any of the musicians he's worked with where they were more rock and roll based. Yeah. yeah. And this one, I mean, Depeche Mode is of course rock and roll, but they're just a different shade of rock and roll. And he wasn't really sure who they were. I don't know if you know, when they approached him, he's like, Depeche who? And he was like 60 years old at the time. What's really fascinating with him too is like his career as a documentarian, because he was an engineer before he became a filmmaker. His first film was Daybreak Express, which was 1953, which used Duke Ellington's jazz recordings as the the soundtrack. So in 1953, what was happening around that time was the birth of rock and roll. So in a weird way, his career was on the same trajectory as the birth of rock and roll music, which would be such an important aspect, an impossible aspect to escape with his disog- or filmography. Right. That's interesting. And when D.A. Pettybaker was approached for this movie, his kids were like, Dad, Depeche Mode, we'll give you some of the- their albums because they had some of their albums. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I have to see them live because, you know, that was one of his strong suits was he would film his subjects performing live. And he saw them and what he witnessed 
was astonishing because he saw these fans interacting with one another and singing along to the music and mm. almost like a religious experience. And yeah. he was astonished at how powerful this music was to that audience. And I think he said a very famous quote, and I'm paraphrasing him, where he says, they were only there for that concert. No other band would do, no other show would do. It was that moment. That's their band. That is very powerful. It's true, though. Even if you're watching it, you know, like I did on a, you know, a, a laptop, you can still feel that it, it comes through. Absolutely. And then he scraped the idea of, or scrapped the idea of historical film that they were envisioning at first. So like, and instead he was thinking, well, let's make this a concert movie because they're such good live performers. Why don't we focus more on that? But then once he was kind of interviewing the band and getting a sense of who they were, he kind of realized, and I hate to (laughs) diss my favorite bands or one of my favorite bands, but he didn't find them really that interesting backstage. (laughs) Bob Dylan, you see him interact with like Donovan and a few other people. Yeah. With Depeche Mode, they're just like clean cut boys. But the thing is, it's like, they're just not really that interesting. Their music and live shows are interesting, but they're very dull. behind the scenes so they kind of added this uh, like another uh, storyline where these fans from long island which i'm from by the way i'm from long island Mm -hmm. and like a radio contest who wants to be in a depeche mode movie yes (laughs) can you imagine something like that happening now oh my god that would never fly today it's just really interesting then they're kind of like juxtaposition the band behind the scenes and performing on stage versus these fans going from Long Island to Pasadena, cross country. And if you think about it from a historical lens, a lot of new wave bands or alternative bands, especially from England or Europe, they were considered like novelty acts or flash in the pans. Mm -hmm. And that was the perception of Depeche Mode. They were big in Europe and elsewhere, but not America. They weren't really taken seriously. So they're just trying to become big in America. Yeah, it's their very naked attempt at getting the American audience to pay attention and really get them famous. Absolutely. And what's really great about this um, concert in many ways is this is like their make it or break it moment. Either they're going to become big or they're not. They've been doing this for, what, seven or eight years at this point. Either they more or less become superstars or they're just consistent hit makers almost like i hate to say throw a band out there i'm thinking of like the human league in yeah, terms of yeah. like a band that they still made music but they were always kind of under the radar mm-hmm. and depeche mode was kind of still under the radar at this point and yeah. like they had their cult following but not a big mainstream audience right and let's just talk for a second about pasadena bull why pasadena bull it it's kind of unheard yeah, of at it's... that time because most rock and roll bands were not thinking of pasadena because first of all it's too big of a stadium it's a football stadium yeah at 60 plus thousand seats and the last time a show sold out was i think they said 1980 or 79 mm-hmm. 80 and i don't even know the show offhand but like in the movie they say like cv wonder and Jackson Brown could even sell out. It was, yes, it was audacious to pick that venue, especially as a band, you know, it's like, this is going to be our big break. We're going to pick the most ostentatious place we could possibly pick to play. That sounds like Depeche Mode in a nutshell. Very yeah. ostentatious. Yes, but what's yes. really funny is that this could have easily backfired on them. They could have like sold at like half of it and it had egg on their face and totally yep. failed. Totally blew it. Yep. And they did it, though. And that's right. what's astonishing. You're not only did they not blow it, but it, it, it 
catapulted them into superstardom. Absolutely. It's just a really ballsy move on their part. So I'm thinking we can split this into three sections. There's the, the performances, the teeny boppers, and the backstage <laughs> the teeny portions boppers. of the film. <laughs> this is like a TRL kind of movie. It- <laughs> Kinda, yeah. More, maybe a little bit older than that. Maybe more. Oh, I'm like trying to be a... funny. When I'm thinking teeny boppers, I'm thinking like Britney Spears. Oh yeah, that's, I think that's... that was the '80s version of teeny. But unless I don't know, maybe unless you count like Tiffany fans or something. But um, absolutely. I don't know. I still categorize them as teeny boppers because they're still teenagers and they're still. Oh. You know. They're so fresh faced. Yeah. Let's get into that then. So I know that you didn't love that. I have to admit, I didn't have as much of a problem with them as you did, but I did find them. I found them to get exhausting after a little while. It gets tiring seeing a lot of the, you know, behaviors of, <laughs> which is why I don't work with teenagers. I work with five-year-olds and they're a lot easier to handle. Um, teenagers, drama. No, I'm joking. Well, um, yeah, a- absolutely. <laughs> and it's, I mean, there were some moments that I thought were fascinating with oh, yeah. these people. For instance, when they're having that conversation about the one, which was a Chris, I think, was having a conversation with, in the hotel room with one of the girls about fashion. Oh, yeah. And it was frustrating as to how kind of close-minded he was about that whole thing. It's like, no, fashion is a form of expression. And he kept insisting, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's it's selling out. It's like, well, it was just, to me, it was like the height of mansplaining. He's like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not what... It, 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 that's not why people do fashion. They want to do it for the money. It's not expression, but it is though. I mean, look around you. But Josh, just think about the band's name for a minute. If you translate it into a, a English, what is it? It's fast fashion. Right. And there he is, you know, following them around the country. <laughs> I know. And you're thinking to yourself, like, he's having this stupid argument with this girl. I always feel like there's always like one guy in like a philosophy class that oh, is always yeah. like, what is art? That's not art. It's he likes, all art. He likes to prove himself, you know, likes to wank off and prove himself right in every situation. Absolutely. And I just say to myself, like, what is the name of the band that you're following? Right. Literally means fast fashion because <laughs> yeah. Depeche Mode, you're constantly evolving and constantly adapting to different um, changes to stay relevant. Absolutely. That's how yeah. I always thought of them as the, the right. band. And it was a, that scene frustrated me. But I will say one of the scenes that I did enjoy was, okay, so this is going to sound really bad, but I really liked the Graceland scene so much. because <laughs> What's I can, Graceland? It's where what? Elvis is from. Oh, El- boring. Elvis. Oh, I love the girl state. Like, Elvis is boring. Boring. <laughs> like she said, like the Southern draw. Like, yeah, like mocking like, him. Yeah, but because they're like stuck up New Yorkers, yeah, and, yeah. and like they're more or less saying, "Oh, the South is dumb," and who's Elvis? They have no interest in history. These kids, right? None. It's almost like this postmodern. They don't way have interest of, in anything except getting drunk and dancing. It's a pesh mode, right? <laughs> and, and even, but that's what frustrated me with the whole movies. Like they didn't even really explain why they liked the pesh mode. I thought like that, I, that, I felt like that was kind of irrelevant. I mean, in the sense, I mean, they dress like them, you know, they dance. So when you're 18, 19 years old, who knows why you like anything? They just, oh, this has a good beat. I want to dress like them. They look cool. A lot of hair travel and hairspray. My yeah, God, I, I like, I, I love the scene where they're, where he's bleaching his hair. Purple. Yes. <laughs> I hate that scene so much. That guy oh, see, going... I liked, I liked that too. I thought it was funny. But the Elvis scene is really fascinating. If you think about Depeche Mode at that time in history, because you see them in Graceland, they're at the house. They pay like what twelve dollars for admission. Yeah, and they're very unimpressed. They're just like, <laughs> "Who's Elvis? Who cares about Elvis?" Yeah. And 
what's funny is that they say, like, one of them says something to the extent of, I would rather see their, like, Depeche Mode's houses than Elvis' house, which I guess is fair. It's kind of weird to, like, go through The somewhere. irony is, though, if you were to tour a house of a Depeche Mode band member, it would be probably ten times more boring than going through Graceland. They are influenced by Kraftwerk, so I would think, like, a lot of the same outfits and... I'm sure Martin <laughs> Gore has, like, a leather sling in his basement. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure he does with all the gear he wears. Oh, My he's God. a leather, BDSM leather daddy, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> Oh, dear um, God, help us. But <laughs> what's really funny, though, is, okay, so they're at Graceland, right? And they're, like, very unimpressed. So what is the next song that's released after 101? It's Personal Jesus. Right. And, and do, you, do you know this story, like, how he was inspired to write Personal Jesus? I don't. So he read Priscilla Presley's memoir, Elvis mm. and Me, in 1985. And he was kind of awestruck in terms of how she considered him godlike, like a personal Jesus. Uh, right okay so yep. it's really fascinating that the fans are so not into elvis in the slightest bit but <laughs> the song that would become one of their big breakthroughs the following year personal jesus was inspired that's partially by elvis that's really funny i don't know if it's before or after <laughs> that scene we see um them in the record store and that's one of the most fascinating behind the scenes oh i love that i love that yeah because you see them playing guitars yep. and looking and at, the, at the country section of the of the music store buying cassette tapes like johnny cash yep. and i think it was roy orbison but i just yeah. always remember the johnny cash one and johnny cash of course covered personal jesus mm-hmm I love I, that. Song. I just think it's adorable how the um, older cashier at the music store was <laughs> just chatting it up with them. She said, "Here's our card. Here's a coupon. Next time you come in." Didn't even phase her that she was talking to you know like a about to be a world famous rock star. I love his answer, and I think I wrote this down somewhere. I'm gonna look it up really fast. Mm. Oh, she says you like country music too, right? And they're like. I'm just getting into it. I don't know much about it. What's bluegrass? It's very endearing. I love it. I love it too. Yeah. Going back to the kids for a minute. They're clearly very naive maybe is the word. When we first meet them mm-hmm. after they decided, after they get chosen to go on this road trip, we see them sitting in the office, in the lawyer's office, looking over oh, these papers yes. and they're looking a, a little dumbfounded. Like, I don't know what any of this means. And, oh, I have my fake ID. They're going to think I'm 23. <laughs> And it's it's so silly. And I'm thinking as I'm watching this movie, keeping that in mind and how they're all just all about getting drunk and all that stuff. How like do they really because Depeche Mode is a relatively intellectually challenging group. They're also an emotionally heavy group. How much of that are they really understanding? Is that really part of the appeal to them? Do they really know what the words are that they're saying? Or do they just like the beat, you know? And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm just genuinely curious if they they have any of that kind of connection to their music or if it's just on a purely visceral level. You know, I thought of that too when I was watching it, This, especially today. Like I was watching it. I'm going to be honest. I skipped a lot of the scenes with the uh, fans because I thought – a lot of it was kind of meaningless. All of them are relatively that, vapid in their own way. Yeah, and they're just like very self-absorbed almost. And you're just like, <laughs> almost? what do you do? <laughs> almost. Uh, that, that scene at the beginning, you're seeing this ponytailed lawyer, like a stereotypical lawyer, telling them their rights. And they're just like, who cares? We're just going to sign off and be in a movie. And it's yeah. going to have Depeche Mode in it. And we're probably going to go beat them and get drunk and among <laughs> other things. And... It's just a wild 
experience. I think you're thinking yourself, like, where's their parents in this? Like, one of them said goodbye to, to go her mom. For... She's like, be safe. Don't okay. dance too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love like, that. Yep. And I love the bus driver so much. Oh my oh gosh. My he, God. I hope he got he paid so very handsomely great. for what he what he dealt with. I think they personally made him get lost. What was your original question, Josh? Because I kind of stumped out for a Oh, second. just do you think that they um that any of those oh, like fans if they like the move music? Well, not if they like the music, but more if they if if they responded to the music on a more emotional level because I feel like Depeche Mode had a certain um group that they were trying to reach with their music and a certain kind of um emotional outcome they were trying to also get with their music that I'm not sure if that was the type of group of fans that were they were originally aiming to reach and do you think that they got any of any of the um, weights or the heft of the lyrics and, oh, uh, and of what their music is trying to say? Or was it, do you think it was just, you know, danceable fluff to them? I think it was danceable fluff. I hate to say it. I think this is like, and I know I'm going to probably get flagged from this, but I think it's like almost like a stereotypically MTV audience of that time. Yeah. They're not thinking about the social political aspects of everything counts or racial mm-hmm. equality of people are people right. or the sexual um, angst and never let me down again. They're just looking like, Hey, the, the beat sounds good. It has synthesizers. Let's just dance the night away. That's yeah. at least how I kind of look at them. I think it's very, I don't know if naive is the word. I think it's almost superficial because I feel like in that era of music, that's a lot of what the audiences that were geared towards new wave they were just like in the beat and there's so much depth in Martin Gore's songwriting. Yes. Yeah. That's what I was curious about. Like, I wonder how much of that they actually picked up on. None. I would say like maybe (laughs) little to none. Right. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. Um, One thing I do have to give the movie credit for. I thought the movie did a, a really nice job of putting you right there in the middle of all the dirt and the griminess and the, the funk of, their day-to-day lives on the bus it felt very raw it felt very in the moment you could almost like smell the bo coming out of the screen because it was so up close and personal with these kids i think it's definitely much a product of its time too sure but i mean like it was very unpolished and that goes back to you know them finding uh penny baker as their director because that's kind of what they were going for and i thought it worked well it was a very unglamorous look at not just the fans and what they were doing but also even backstage too, like it was very, very unglamorous and unpolished and, uh, and raw. Well, that's the whole um, concept of like direct cinema or cinema verite. With direct cinema, Penny Baker, uh, Robert Drew, Richard Leacock, these were like a group of 1960s, late 50s and throughout the 60s filmmakers who basically were striving for objectivity in mm-hmm. documentary cinema. So they looked at their subjects like they would have to take a step back in order to find truth of their subjects they they would never interact with their subjects or very little if any and they mostly were like flies on the wall Mm. that's such a famous motto in direct cinema it's fly on fly on the wall or fly on the windscreen maybe like depeche mode reference um (laughs) type of filmmaking these filmmakers uh, collectively, and they were very close. Like they made, they like started a, a studio together, and they were more or less very much against like this god-like narratives that were dominating, especially American cinema in the post-war years. Yeah, they, they were very like revolutionary. What they did, and D.A. Penny Baker is one of those uh, founding fathers of American direct cinema. 
And you definitely see that they really hardly interact with their subjects, really. Yeah. It's almost as if they're just happen to be there. Yes. And that leads well into the next section that we could talk about is a lot of the band backstage stuff, which is yes. pretty interesting. I, I like I a lot of it. Yeah. Dave Gahan is, like you said, he, he, <laughs> the band is a little bit boring, but I found Dave Gahan to be very interesting because he felt a little bit like a loose cannon sometimes, uh, a very unpredictable personality. I was going to say a diva. <laughs> like, okay, I, I sure. Think, yeah, yeah. He, he just like, like almost like a very big personality. And I actually looked at this very differently when I watched it. Dave is really kind of an asshole in this movie in many ways. <laughs> at times he is. Yeah, for sure. Like gloating mean, like, about very... beating up the bus driver or the cab driver. I just kept beating at him and kicking him. And then his trousers <laughs> fell. And I'm just yes. like, oh my. And then Martin Gore just pushes him. I love that. I love that story. And then I love right after he says, you know, I get so mad sometimes. I just want to kill someone. What? <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, then we cool off. Yeah. And, then we do more, and then we get along. And then a few weeks later, I just want to kill someone again. <laughs> this is psychotic almost. Right. Dave Gahan, he totally, totally works the camera throughout this whole movie. Yeah, and there's he does. at least two incidences where he does that. So near the beginning of the movie, he plays the pinball on the pin. Uh, and he's obsessed with this pinball, by the way. I don't know. Yeah, him and Martin. Yeah, they're like totally in the pinball. They're pinball wizards. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway. Is that a reference to something? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Who? Right. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it's really funny because you hear in the background here, Roxy Music's Love is the Drug, which I love Roxy Music, by yes. the way. They're one of my favorite bands and obviously a huge influence on Depeche Mode lyrically and musically like Very it's impossible so. yeah and I, I you hear love is a drug and then of course you hear dave gahan sing along to the chorus and he's mm -hmm. like lumber up limbo down yeah and then i love when he says the, the when he gets right before the chorus and he says um dim the lights you get the rest and he looks right at the camera he totally mm -hmm. is playing the camera and he just watches you smolder oh he knows what he's doing yes and then the other scene is when I think it's towards the end. I think it's right before they go on the concert. He's looking in the mirror and he's like, oh, I'm sorry I look so terrible right now. I've only been on tour for like nine months. <laughs> like, Dave is not in a good mood today. Yeah, he was very unpredictable. And I, I think, too, that was maybe started the onset of his drug abuse, too. Well, that think, didn't help well, either. Think about it. He had a drink in his... I noticed this more in this view and is that he had a drink in his hand throughout the movie and then he's talking about when he was you know he had a sore throat and he wasn't feeling well so he had to take all those steroids <laughs> oh dude that's yeah we're heading we're heading south here <laughs> oh i felt so bad for him because like as a fan and like someone who knows their history later on mm -hmm. you're like it's cringeworthy because you're like this is starting his substance abuse because right. even in the movie more or less like i only have like two real friends in the i was world. just gonna mention that scene that was powerful. a powerful scene yeah and then he's like well i was happier as a grocery stalker and he was describing how he's lonely on the road he has no friends he has no family he doesn't trust anyone but he makes a lot of money and money's just happiness almost mm -hmm. like a facade and you could tell like even backstage you could see him with a towel over his throat. He could tell he's really straining his voice. Yeah. And it's just awkward to watch because you feel bad for the guy. Right. He would channel a lot of that angst, I think, in his writing as the years went on. Absolutely. And you could also see in the scene, too, when the roadie or someone said, turn it down. And then he said, up yours. And then he's like, well, I'm just going to fire you if you do that ever oh, again. Yeah. He just told you to calm down because he missed the cue for you to go on stage. So you don't look like idiots. Mm-hmm. 
even though he's a little unlikable in this movie, it's still he's a likable guy. He is. He's he's got a magnetic personality, and that can win people over. And he's a good stage perform uh, stage oh, presence. Like incredible. Uh, yes. Very few people, in my opinion, could do what Dave Gahan does on stage mm-hmm. and really get the audience into the music. Yes. Yeah. He he could work a crowd like nobody else. Like at a the Freddie end. Mercury. Yeah. Yeah. Like at the end with the hand waves. You know. Oh, we're gonna definitely talk about that. It's like one of my favorite things ever. I mean, yes. It's, yes. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I also love the insight into a lot of the technicals of the you know putting the performance together, putting all you know setting up the stage, all the little backstage ins and outs of putting the show together, and seeing how the keyboard works. You know what I'm talking about when he starts talking. Yeah. How he said that he had. Yeah. How he had a pre-made recording that he just kind of looped and then how he just uses that how he plays on loop and then he adds the other sound so i found that fascinating the keyboard he's using is not that different from the casio keyboard i I had when i was like seven or eight years old no it's very mass produced it is and i thought that was really really cool and i think alan wilder's insight 25 minutes in the movie he talks about how he has all these um keyboard things going on like with black celebration and he's showing you like how he does it and it's very technical the filmmakers ask him don't you make mistakes he's like oh all the time okay did you watch the uh da pettibaker interview that he did mm-hmm. like five years ago he turned around and said something that was really i thought disparaging at first about the band he's like alan wilder is the only one that actually plays music up there yeah i remember and i was like oh <laughs> my god and this is apparently petty baker's favorite favorite movie and his favorite band that he worked with because at one point andy flasher says and i quote martin's the songwriter alan's the good musician dave's the vocalist and i just bum around <laughs> because i don't know what the hell andy fletcher does in this movie i really don't he looks like someone who's trying to imitate craft work yeah like i totally just saw craft work like the man machine era cover depeche mode is totally indebted to craft work I just kept thinking his robotic movements on stage and the way he dressed and the lack of facial expressions. I just kept thinking of craft work the whole time when Mm -hmm. I watched Andy Fletcher on stage. And I don't mean to diss him, but it's just funny. The backstage parts of this movie with Depeche Mode, I thought were very interesting. One of my favorite scenes is Martin Gore and Andy Fletcher are in the radio station and they're getting like these really weird questions from different listeners. Like, Oh yeah, I know what scene this is. How much do you sweat on stage? And and one of the uh, fans says, can I sing for tickets? (laughs) Andy Fletcher's like, okay, what song? And the guy's like, people are people that's like the easiest song for you to sing and he turns around and, and he starts uh, singing it anyway <laughs> no but you know what's the funniest part about that whole whole scene is that the, the fan is singing very uh <laughs> I can't, I can't, i'm laughing he's uh he's really trying to like put umph into it and, and he like misspeaks the lyrics because <laughs> he says people are people so <laughs> okay i gotta say this right people are people so why should they sing you and i are so together so awfully you're supposed to be this mega fan you're speaking to martin gore right and you're not the... even getting the words right oh i love that scene so much then of course we get to the on stage parts which oh, are are the selling yes. point of the movie oh absolutely we get a real uh variety of songs from their early catalog which is great a lot of music of the masses stuff pretty much all of their big hits up until that point off the first three albums i think it's just Everything counts and just can't get enough. It's really some great reward, Black Celebration and Music for the Masses that are the ones where you're seeing more 
of their the focus for this movie. Right, and exactly. What is some of your favorite performances from the movie or the renditions? Mm. Ooh, that's a tough one. A lot of them were amazing. You go first. I'll go, yeah. I'll go first. Um my one of my favorites is Strange Love. I got a lot of flack online for this. It's a weird song because I think it perfectly captures this the dark lyrics of Depeche Mode, but this upbeat, up tempo uh, music because mm-hmm. it, it's a fun song you could dance along to it but it's like about love and pain will you return it i don't know it's a great song i think that's a song that, that a like one. if any song is, embodies their work it's that song it's not their best or my favorite but i just think that it encapsulates what they're striving for yeah it's quintessential dark, depeche mode dark lyrics and very upbeat synthesized based pop music yeah that is what we're going with i love that performance and i love how like you see full shots and then you get close-ups of dave and the lights go from very clear then you get red and blue and Mm -hmm. very dramatic they had an amazing light show oh my god it's it's so it's so amazing to watch i love that one i also like uh behind the wheel the opening song yeah that was Mm -hmm. played sets the energy nicely i also really love black celebration that's one of their my favorites i think i have two favorites from the set i think my, my one favorite was blasphemous rumors oh yes that girl oh my god can we yeah. talk for a second about so what i love about their performances too what petty baker does like monterey pop is you're, you see just as many shots of the audience as depeche mode on stage and that's brilliant because petty baker was famous for that yes. he wanted the audience to be a part of this collective experience mm-hmm Almost like Woodstock. It's almost more about the attendees than the actual performer. The devotees. Yes. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, but uh, no, and I love like the, how the one girl, she's like having this religious out-of-body experience. <laughs> she's, it's almost like you think she's going to say like praise Jesus at one point. It's it's amazing. She's so into it. I've never seen any anybody as into the music as I have with her. She's like reach out and touch faith. Oh, she's Maybe doing that, it. Oh, she's totally. I'm sorry. She's totally doing it. My other favorite, of course, is Never Let Me Down Again. Oh, my God. It's iconic. It's, I think, their best song. And I think what I love about the song, first of all, and I don't want to overstep your conversation. No, no, no. I think, I think it's such a cinematic song because yeah. it's leading up to this climax. It's very dark, mysterious, and borderline homoerotic because you're not sure what's going on with the lyrics, like what they're <laughs> referencing. I don't know, I, but it's a brilliant song, and it's one of their first ventures to uh, alternative rock. Because you hear that guitar, and then the synthesizers, and this ominous sounds and lyrics, and then you see it envelops on, you. Oh, it absolutely does, Josh. And I love how you see Dave Gahan go, and he's waving his hands, and you see like just can't get enough, and everything counts, which we will talk about. Everything counts because I love mm. that scene the most. I love how in He's engaging with the audience. So he's having the microphone pointed towards them for them to sing along. And then they just start waving their hands. And then you see like 60,000 people doing the same thing. Holy moly. This is breathtaking. Powerful. Even on a tiny little screen, it really, it makes an impact. Like you imagine watching this on a big screen. I can't imagine. That guy has a command. And this, and, and by the way, like he said in interviews after this, that was totally spontaneous. That was never planned. He just thought waving their hands, like almost like a goodbye to the audience. I mean, everything counts was the last song, by the way. Never Let Me Down was not the final song. Oh, right. In the, mo- mm-hmm. in the actual performance. Right. That's how they ended most of their shows. That's become 
a trademark with the Depeche Mode fans and yes. the devotees. They do that because they play the song pretty much every time. I love I love that scene so much. And then my favorite scene beyond that one is Everything Counts because I think yeah. it's a perfect juxtaposition of the lyrics of Everything Counts, which is so anti-capitalistic and yeah. so it, it's like like the grabbing hands, they grab all they can and to the scenes of the managers and the producers or whoever it is backstage and they're counting the money and they're talking about how many tickets they sold and they're raking in all this <laughs> for themselves. And, oh, the irony. Oh, the irony of that. And you're just like, perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love too when he's singing the song, Dave, and his baritone perfection, because it is, oh, it's yeah. like, he has such he a has good an baritone amazing voice. voice. They're singing the chorus, and he does it, I think, one or two times extra because they're having such a good time with it. Mm-hmm. And you hear the audience sing the chorus that Martin Gore sings because Dave doesn't sing the chorus of that song. Martin Gore does. Right. And he's just pointing the microphone towards them, and he's more or less thinking, okay, like maybe they'll sing along. And then like you hear like everybody sing. They didn't miss a note. They were singing all the exact same time, every it, syllable, every breath. It was just it was it was breathtaking. I would love to see them live someday. Josh, we could oh, if true. We were actually That's... go into the ceremony, which is now postponed. Right. Till at least October, I would say. It, it's, but I would love yeah. to go to one of their shows because you know they play like a very deep set list. Like that's the oh, one yeah. thing about Depeche Mode is they don't play a lot of their hits really and they don't have to. We're gonna play what we kinda want. And the fans play. the fans accept everything because they're because the fans that go to the shows are, are they they know the deep stuff. Like they're one of the few bands I can think of that could pull that off where they can yeah. kind of play whatever they want. And you're still going to sell out any arena and any. Right. I can think maybe like to. Radiohead is another one that, that's one of the only other ones I can think of. And I've seen them three times astonished. and they've never played Karma Police or Creep or like anything from the Benz. Yeah. And you're just saying to yourself like, my God, this is like their big breakthrough and like what they're known for in America, at least, was the Benz and OK Computer. Yeah, they would never, and- ever play any of that live <laughs> but it just speaks to how brilliant depeche mode as a band is and how strong their discography is that they don't have to play the hits like right. when they get inducted hopefully this year they're gonna play kind of whatever they want in the sense like the cure did last year now yeah if you think about it for a second no new wave band or alternative band especially for non-american we're we're playing at football stadiums right arena and Depeche Mode, such a gutsy move on their part. They wanted to play the Rose Bowl. They said we could sell it out. And they weren't getting any support really from American radio stations or anything like that. And they more or less took a huge gamble. And they mm-hmm. could have failed hugely on this and probably would have fizzled out and probably broke up or whatever. Right. And this proved that you don't have to be a traditional rock band to sell out huge stadiums and arenas right right your guns and roses your bon jovis your motley Crues were selling out these arenas not your depeche modes i mean depeche mode were always headliners too by the way they were never the open and act really. oh no i mean or very few times probably earlier career but like they're always the headliner no matter what yeah and that's one aspect of this movie that i'm disappointed is not only do we not see the full concert footage because penny baker didn't really film the entire concert or if he did it's considered lost which is very sad yeah. to most fans but i'm really sad that we didn't see like the opening acts 
interact even backstage. Like we didn't see Wire, we didn't see Thomas. I Dobie was thinking or, that. How cool uh, would that have been? Yeah, OMD, Wire, and Thomas Dobie. I'm thinking to myself like they mentioned them backstage. Dave Kahn's like, oh, Wire and OMD. They're just like warm ups for us. Like, yeah, he was gonna, super like, dismissive take- of them. They were kind of like precursors, especially Wire, yeah. to Depeche Mode, and they're very important po- po- post-punk bands. Absolutely, Wire. I would I, I had been lo- around longer than Depeche Mode had. Absolutely, because they had uh, I think a seventy-six, seventy-seven. Pink mm-hmm. Flag was out, mm-hmm. and hugely influential just, album. Absolutely, one of the best post-punk albums ever. Yeah, and it's just weird that like we don't see them, and I I just. I, I wish that was there, even for like a split second. Yeah. And also something I really didn't like about this movie, speaking of things that, you know, I wish some people criticize this movie. And I want your take on this. Okay. So when they do like Black Celebration, Shake the Disease, you know, the earlier performances in the movie, it's not at the Pasadena Bowl, but it's like the concerts in, say, Pittsburgh or Albuquerque or wherever. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about that? Like the fluidity of the concert like would you have preferred it to actually been all pasadena or were you okay with it being in different cities i was fine with it because it kept me in the moment because some fans complain about that and i'm thinking to myself you can't always have everything and and also (laughs) no i'm saying like you can't you know like maybe it was bad some of those performances like faster and servant or shake the disease at the actual show that's true yeah I think it's an unfair criticism, but at the same time, though, what is the other aspect of this movie? It's the fans are traveling from New York to California to see a show. So it kind of makes sense that they're filming in different cities. Yes. And you even hear Martin Gore at one point say, we're trying to hit it big in America. In some places we sell out with 20,000 seats and some we can't even get 2,000. Mm-hmm. They don't fit into like a lot of these uh, more maybe conservatives, the best word to use like more conservative right right or uh traditional audiences and depeche mode is anything but traditional oh absolutely let's talk about the title of the film because there's a lot of different interpretations and meanings to it well there's three different ways you could interpret the title of this movie so it's called depeche mode 101 yeah so alan wilder thought of the title because he thought okay it's the 101st concert of our music for the masses tour and then also it's because uh, U.S. Route 101, a route near uh, California that takes you through Pasadena. Uh-huh. But more importantly, 101 is like an introduction to Depeche Mode, especially yeah. for American audiences who may not be familiar with the band. Right. So it's right. like there's a definitely multi-layered uh, way to look at the meaning of this title. It's funny because when I first heard the name of the movie, I figured that's what it would be, would be like an overview of the band. And it kind of was that, but maybe not as much as I would have expected. But see, I think the introduction to the band aspect, I think that's a hard thing to look at because there's no historical discussion of the band beyond that. Al Wilder saying kind of, I joined the band after Vince Clark left and I was a grocery store worker. And after that, you're kind of like in the <laughs> in the moment. I guess I was just expecting more of history about the group, you know, and and that sort of thing. But it but what they did makes sense, and it, and it does help you to get the know to know the individual members of the band a little more personally beyond just the music. So, which one do you think did you like the most? The band members behind uh, the scenes, probably Martin Gore. 
he's always like very awkward when he does he gets interviewed so you see yeah. like them doing press releases and he always looks very shy and timid and maybe that's why i liked him is because genius. he didn't he wasn't as showy except maybe in his wardrobe but oh absolutely <laughs> but Speaking um... of showy i think it's hilarious when they're driving in the car together the four band members in that car mm-hmm. to the Rose Bowl at the beginning of the movie. Alan Wilder is the one who speaks. He's the only one that seems articulate when talking to the press because you see Andy Fletcher being awkward, like he's throwing a football and he's unathletic. And then you see Martin Gore tripping up on his words and he's like, Does that sound okay? And she's like, <laughs> Okay, do it one more time. Right. And then Dave Gahan is going to ask the question and you don't even hear his response because you're getting the impression that. There's no substance, maybe. Right. Or he just doesn't like, care enough to give a decent answer. I know. And then, like, you see him posing in front of the car. Say word to Peshmerga. They're like, screw off. It's so them in, in many ways. It is. It is. And I love, love that. But it's something about Martin. I think he just was so, um, I don't know. I just found him relatable maybe because he was so timid. And, and, he and I mean, we're, we're both like into leather. <laughs> well, just they, they, they really are. My God. <laughs> It's it's kind of nuts. Yeah. And when you look back at like the pictures of Depeche Mode, he's in full uh, S&M gear, Martin Gore. Oh, yeah. It rivals Judas Priest, even. <laughs> they got another thing coming. They Judas do. Priest. They really do. <laughs> and even like the four guys, like stylistically and fashion-wise, they're totally different from one another. So Al Wilder's kind of in, what, slacks and maybe a dress shirt, preppy. And then you have Al, uh, Martin Gore in S&M gear. <laughs> And then you have Dave Gahan's dress pants or khakis and a uh, leather and a jacket. Top. <laughs> and then you see, <laughs> yeah, the white tank top. Yeah. He liked white, by the way. Yeah. But it was black leather. That's another story for another uh, day. And then you have Andy Fletcher totally craft working it up. Red clothing, like very bright clothing. The robotic movements. Okay, like I'm totally being to Andy. But it's true, like they're all such different and they're very individualistic kind of like what dave said in the movie when he was talking about the cabbie scene yes mm-hmm. these, these are four different guys and they're kind of all alphas in a weird way they're striving to stand out in this band i love how depeche Mode evolved and they became more popular as they got darker in their music yes and it's fascinating because they're talking about all these dark themes of sexuality religion and politics Mm -hmm. and all these like heavy issues but Depeche Mode stuck it out and they became superstars unlikely superstars in a sea Mm -hmm. of 80s superficiality Depeche Mm -hmm. Mode is very much of their time but also it's an almost unheard of aspect where these guys didn't become superstars until like almost a decade into their formation Mm -hmm. after their formation and that's pretty impressive it is it is it doesn't happen often and they're so influential on so many artists it's everyone from the pet shop boys to muse uh no doubt the killers anyone essentially even like nine inch nails you can hear like the industrial kind of thing you know and tool absolutely you know there's a really great depeche mode uh black celebration story with trent reznor so trent reznor was working in Cleveland and mm-hmm. he 
I guess was a janitor. I'm, I'm probably saying the story wrong, like where he was or what he was doing. And he was kind of starting to get like a band together, which would become Nine Inch Nails. Mm-hmm. And he heard in 1986 when the, the album came out, he said that that album made him want to use uh, synthesized bass music and also use those themes and lyrics that Depeche Mode used and inspired him to form that band. And wow. how fitting how fitting is it that they're both getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the same year? Isn't that amazing? I think that Depeche Mode, when you think of their legacy, you think of this band that really defined an era so brilliantly. Yeah. And and they're kind of like the personification of new wave and alternative for better or worse, depending on how you look at them, because they have a very much a polarizing reaction among music fans. Like either you love them and get them, or you think of them. All the songs sound the same. I'm beyond happy for them that they're getting finally into yes. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It will definitely be a black celebration. It, it definitely whatever will be. <laughs> whatever that happens, because you know we don't we're not sure yeah. at this point. Yeah, let's um, let's let's hope it does. You know, by the end of the year would be great, but we'll see. This has been such a great conversation we've had. It has, you, yes. And thank you so much for having me because it's oh, my been pleasure, anytime. A, a pleasure, absolutely. And I think hopefully more people discover this movie. It's kind of a lost movie in many ways. Like either you know it or you don't. Yeah. Or if you think of Penny Baker, this is obviously not the first movie you think of because you right. think of Don't Look Back or Monterey Pop. Those are yes. probably the two. Um, I hope he gets a bigger audience. And I think it's really fascinating to me that this was his favorite movie that he made. That is really interesting. It, it, it's wild, it's just, actually. It boggles my mind almost when I yeah. hear that because I read interviews with him and he, he's always said this. And like, and, and people will look at him at like film discussions or interviews and they just almost have like the blank stare. Like you worked with like Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> Janis Joplin, uh, Paul Simon, Little Richard, Charlie Lewis, <laughs> and I'm naming big people. And Depeche Mode is your favorite? Like, what is wrong with you, kinda? <laughs> and and he's very um he just says if we have these interviews that he's like the energy of it. And the fans yeah. were so invested in Depeche Mode that you couldn't help but not like them. That's even a good if, point. Even if the music didn't connect to you on a pure aesthetic level, you couldn't help but admire how devoted quote unquote they were to their uh favorite band but i think that it's it's a very much a fun experience to watch and it's very much a relic a product of its time oh so if it's so it kind of looks a little um what's the word old-fashioned it's grainy and it's um it needs to be restored i think that's the thing so criterion channel where are you um (laughs) nick bambeck where can we find you in social media Okay, so you can find me at Nick D. Bambach on Twitter, and you can find me on my blog, which is the Audiovisual Repository. So I focus mainly on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I'm also going to start including more film reviews. So something to look after, uh, look after, because that is my background, and I got a subscription recently to the Criterion Channel. So Welcome definitely, to the club. <laughs> I've always wanted to join. I just have never been 
had time, but now we have so much time. Yes, we do. <laughs> For sure. Um, well, if you want to get in contact with me, you can um, send me a tweet at rockmoviespod or in my personal Twitter handle is joshf618. Um, you can email me at movies at rockpod at gmail.com. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, positive or negative is fine. I, I can take the criticism. And um, I can't, though. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Don't criticize him. You can criticize me. I'll, I'll no, take oh, it. Oh, no. Oh, no. You can criticize me. I can take it. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, that's good to know. Well, thanks again, Nick. This has been a real, real blast. And I appreciate you coming on and doing this. Oh, no. Thank you so much, Josh, for having me. As a devotee, it means the world. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Hopefully we'll have, have you on again soon. 